This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Gary Vinerchuk, Chairman of VinerX and CEO of Viner Media, on a variety of subjects. We discuss the major themes of entrepreneurship, family business, branding, media, and his first impressions on Asia. Hi, Gary. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me too. And we are sitting in Property Guru's office in Singapore. And I'm talking to Gary Vaynerchuk, CEO of VaynerMedia and a very well-known media influencer in the United States, who I'm a fan of because I read a couple of his books, Crush It, Ask Gary V, Jab, 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 Right Hook, and The Thank You Economy, and of course, listening to your podcast as well. Thank you very much. And plus your new sneakers, right? Yes, I have some new sneakers coming out. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, since you are out here in Asia, yes. I wanted to ask you, can you briefly introduce yourself to my audience sure. who may not be familiar with what sure. you have done in the US, Mark? Yes, of course. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm sure this is the first time you're, uh, one of the first times, if not the first time you're getting uh, exposed to me. So first of all, thank you for your attention. Thank you for supporting my friend's podcast here. You know, I was born in communist Soviet Russia, Soviet Union. I, I moved to the US in the late 70s. Uh, we were very poor. We were just happy to get out of that regime. Lived in a studio apartment with eight family members in Queens, New York. So very humble beginnings. Much like a lot of American immigrants, my dad became a merchant, you know, stock boy in a liquor store in the U.S. And in the early to mid-80s, he uh, purchased a, a small liquor store in Springfield, New Jersey. So much like a lot of immigrants, you know, he saved every dollar the first seven or eight years. We lived very humbly, save, 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 buy a small business. That's what he did. I was a very entrepreneurial kid. Lemonade stands is a big thing in America. I would sell that. Baseball cards, sports memorabilia, I was very big on that. And then when I was 14, 15, I got dragged into my dad's liquor store, fell in love with wine collecting, and decided to launch one of the first e-commerce wine businesses back in 1997. Built my dad's business from a $3 million a year revenue business to a $60 million a year revenue business on the back of email, Google AdWords, and then ultimately YouTube when it first came out. YouTube sells for $2 billion. I read an article about Ron Conway, angel investor. I decide to become one. I invest in Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr in 2007 and eight. Changes the course of my career. I want to buy the New York Jets, an American football team. The way I think I can do that is by buying businesses, brands specifically, and refurbishing them. So I decided seven years ago to start a company called Vayner Media with my brother AJ, which is now a holding company, Vayner X, where I also own PureWow, a women's publishing company. But we're an 800-person digital agency buying media, creating content, uh, and distributing it across a social and digital web, Facebook, Twitter, uh, but also... I, I synthesize myself for all of you in one way. I think that I day trade attention. And so what I mean by that is I'm obsessed with the notion of all of us who are listening right now want to achieve something, whether we want to sell something, whether we want to run for government, whether we want somebody to know about our, our daughter's music skills. And the way you do that is by getting somebody's attention and then telling them something. I am fascinated by podcasts by Facebook ads, by KOLs, by all the different things happening in the world in all the regions. And I think some things are very overpriced, you know, direct mail, billboards, television commercials, and I think some things are underpriced. 
aforementioned KOLs. So that's what I do. And along the way, I've built my brand quite a bit. I've written four New York Times bestselling books, and I give keynote speeches all over the world, including one here today in Singapore. I thought it was very interesting that you mentioned KOL because、mm-hmm. key opinion leader is a term that is used in China. So、yes. your understanding of China is probably pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, look, I you know, as you, you know, and now to update all of you, I've been very thoughtful of entering the Asian market, mainland China. We were talking earlier. I, I, like many Americans, do think of it as mainland China. Then I put Japan and Korea into a bucket, and then I think about the rest. But I'm very aware of Singapore, Malaysia, Jakarta, things that I think about it thoughtfully. I, I you know, I pride myself in being open-minded and thoughtful. I think American businessmen and women tend to be closed-minded. We're very insular. You know, it's something people don't understand about Americans. So I've been very thoughtful over the last four or five years, paying close attention. I was an angel investor in Path, so I, obviously I knew a lot of what was going on here. And again, I you know I I think that there's so much real purebred entrepreneurial spirit in the overall Asian market that I've been watching from afar. Early this year, I took my first trip to Hong Kong. Now I'm here in Singapore. Vayner Media has real ambition to open an office here.、Uh, I have ambition to be in mainland China twice next year, Japan, Korea, Malaysia. So yes, I do have an understanding. And there's obviously many things that the mainland China companies are further ahead than the U.S. markets. And there's also uniqueness in Southeast Asia, you know, platforms and execution that I'm always paying attention to because I try to figure out: Do they make sense in an American environment? How are our citizens different? What are the infrastructure differences? But yeah, I, I really want to win, and I think you can't win in the next forty years without being thoughtful in every part of the world, including Africa and South America and things of that nature. I have enjoyed your books because you always talk about social media as a way to grab attention. Yes. Where you think about how to get customers to come to us, you're very customer-centric. Yes. Point. So I only have two questions. Please. Before we move to that, to the rest of the more interesting stuff. Can you share about how you think of social media that has evolved from the past to today, and what are your favorite social media tools? So I think the only thing that's evolved, it you know, and if you read Crush It, which I wrote in two thousand eight, came out in two thousand nine. I've I'm as big a buyer of this revolution as anybody, and I'm glad I put it on paper, right? So I think the only thing that's really changed is nobody doubts it anymore. This is changing. Governments and society and propaganda in a way that now it's you know I, I laugh when people I have business meetings where people literally spend the first twenty minutes talking about Russia invading America through its Facebooks and this and then all of a sudden we get to marketing and they tell me Facebook's not that big they should still do television I'm like wait a minute what about the first twenty minutes when you said our entire government's being overthrown by social media but now to sell your blouses or your soda it's not important so. I think the only thing that's changed is people's acceptance of it and its scale. My favorite right now is definitely Instagram、uh, because of its flexibility and because of its overwhelming attention, and because if you're trying to sell something to somebody twenty to forty-five, it is the platform along with Facebook, but a little bit more because under twenty-seven, it's got so much more juice than Facebook. And that, and that is, you know, obviously in all the markets that Instagram is, and some some of the people listening here, it has not penetrated that market. But that is my favorite right now. I enjoy your books. One of the things is your the way you think about business pragmatism, and of course the story of your family business. So I wanted to talk about your two books, Crush It and Ask Gary V. And since you are here, so in Ask Gary V, I I know in the first ep- chapter you talk about the clouds and the dirt as a metaphor of looking at high level principles. Such as bring value to the customer, always 
play the long game of lifetime value. Can you talk about how do they guide you in terms of how you think and how you execute? Because I, you, you seem to be able to bridge it pretty quickly and you feel that execution is really the key to everything. So it's super interesting. I'm really enjoying This is such a great way to start my trip. I just want everybody to know I'm about to pay your host here a huge compliment. We don't know each other, but I have a funny feeling we're going to know each other for a very long time. I meet a lot of people. I wish, well, I, I have the film, so if any of you guys, maybe we'll, maybe we'll send it to you and you can use it for another podcast. You said something now in your question. I'm listening to the way you're asking questions, and then obviously I have the benefit of the last hour and realizing how thoughtful you are. Something that I'm becoming more in tune with is I'm the most consumer-centric thing that I know of. Other people, other businesses, I'm watching how uh, two of my partners in crime, Rice and David D. Rock, just reacted. I'm unbelievably consumer centric. So, clouds and dirt. My thesis is if you care more about the end consumer than you care about your own self, you will win. So, I talk a lot about 5149 for people that really follow my content. I really live it. I really genuinely live it. I never make short term financial decisions. I'm always trying to bring more value to the other party. I do that for a couple reasons. Number one, I think I'm talented enough to get quite a bit in my 49. I also think it's unbelievable leverage. I also think it's a nice legacy. I think it's nice to do. I think it's a nice legacy to have. And I do that with my interpersonal relationships and I definitely do that with my businesses. So my principles guide everything. You're right, execution's everything. And I think what's interesting about the clouds and dirt metaphor is it helps people paint a picture of what I'm most worried about, which is I believe 99% of people listening to this podcast spend an ungodly amount of time in the middle. I'll give you an example of something in the middle. Process. Process is held on such a pedestal in modern business society, and I find that to be in the middle. I understand its value, but I do feel that if you push hard on the clouds, your religion, and you push hard on the dirt, the actual doing, that the process gets commoditized and you go faster. And so, yes, I have principles of bringing more value, the lifetime value, attention, arbitrage, as I mentioned earlier, and then... You know, I'm never too fancy to do. I mean, I will be honest with you. I think even this 30 minutes is a good example of that. I didn't over-ask Rice. I have no clue how many people listen to your podcast. I'm never in a place where I think I'm too fancy to do the work. I take a lot of pride that I'm a practitioner. I understand Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram, these platforms, better than most because I use them multiple times every day, 365 days a year. I think it's a huge competitive advantage, and I think... I think that, you know, obviously you mentioned earlier HBS and Harvard. You know, I think the thing that I've learned as not a good student and as an executor now that I'm 41 on the verge of being 42 years old is, man, a lot of things break down between theory and execution. And I am uh, I'm absolutely obsessed with execution. And I do think that theory at a lot of times sits in the middle. I think you have to push yourself to the clouds to a bigger calling, and I think there's no better calling than the end consumer if you're building a consumer product. There's a lot of startups out there dreaming about becoming unicorns, and you have been an investor of unicorns. But I also understand you have a very different perspective to business because I've heard a couple of interviews, particularly the recent one on Recode. So can you share a little bit about your philosophies, particularly in becoming sustainable, focusing on top-line revenue and optimizing for, for profit? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question, and we got to speak to it a little bit before as well. 
just, I'm just trying to make all of you who are listening jealous that you missed out on so much good stuff before we started the podcast, so I'll try to fill you in. Yeah, I, I think, again, and I'm going to give you a compliment, the fact that you used consumer-centric and you used practicality, I feel like a lot of people are confused by me. I think I do a very good job building a persona that makes it a little bit of an enigma. The fact that you've been able to synthesize me makes me think you're smart, which is interesting, and I, and I guess this is what it comes down to. My friends... We are living through the greatest era of financial arbitrage machines. When I hear unicorn, you know, yes, there's the companies that have been successful, but to me, I'm worried because I think most of the people that are deemed unicorns today are just rhinoceroses wearing outfits that look like a unicorn because a lot of the current unicorns are not sustainable with a macroeconomic slowdown. And so, you know, you brought up a great point, which is it may not be the way we manipulate economies. It may be something like war or something else that creates a need for liquid that will force a correction. I think that's ex- exactly a astute observation. And to me, the question is very simple. So, for example, the business I run today, it's a $150 million a year revenue business. It makes some level of profit this year, the least that it ever has. However, if shit got difficult next year, even during the Great Depression, brands advertised right? Not everybody goes out of business. If shit hits the fan tomorrow, every brand in the world is going to start scrutinizing how it spends its marketing dollars. I believe if every brand lost half of its marketing budget next year, everyone, that my company would grow 10x because they would have to scrutinize where they spend their money and spending it with us is far better than spending it with, you know, with uh, WPP agencies that want to sell highly profitable television and programmatic banners. So for me, I'm thinking about that. I think a lot of the unicorns are not profitable and they need the next round of capital. And if that goes away, their businesses break. And so I'm yelling because it's too late for you know, Spotify or, or Ubers or all these big companies. They're on their way. They've, they're, they're on their way. But there's a lot of young kids who are in the middle who are raising their A or their B who have no thought, none, of actually building a business, what they're trying to do is build a big enough valuation so that on their third fundraising round, they can take money off the table. The fact that there are kids who are able to get to a C and D round and are able to take tens and hundreds of millions of dollars off the table without ever building a successful business is clearly attractive. That's fine for a founder or two, but when the shit hits the fan, that's not going to be good for the investors and more importantly, in my opinion, the employees. And... Um, and I, I have a problem with that. Mm. Suppose today you can give, tell your 20-year-old self something on business. What would be the advice you give him that you should know? That's a good question. I would say that your intuition is right. That as long as you don't die, this is a marathon. And it's a hell of a lot better to train for a marathon than a sprint. And that's it. Like, I, you know, I can't, I'm so grateful for where I'm sitting today, heading into the prime of my business career with really deep fundamental skill sets that will help me navigate through no matter what happens going forward, both emotionally and in business. And so I was a very unique kid. I built a very big business in my 20s and was still paying myself $60,000 a year and didn't need stuff because I wanted to be all-time great. And uh, I kept reinvesting in my businesses instead of buying watches and sneakers and cars. And um, I wouldn't really want to say too much because I would be scared if I said something, that kid would do something differently than he did. Since we are in Asia, that most businesses are actually driven by family and 
one of the things I actually identified when I read Ask Gary Vee is that you also work in your family business too. And I think that's probably one of the most interesting and very under-talked in most of your interviews. So I want to ask you, what is the experience like and how do you navigate the dynamics in working that's with family? Good. So I've been getting in tune with this a little bit more now that AJ has left VaynerMedia. This is probably the first time I've really operated in some pseudo capacity of not having family with me in my entire career, even though AJ's still on the you know cap table and things of that nature, and I still talk to him about it. Though to his credit, he never asks and lets me do my thing. It's probably the thing I'm most proud of. I think when people look back at my career and, and dig under the hood, which... You know, even me saying that speaks to the audacity that I have, and, and I want to be an all-time entrepreneur. I really do, but not because I say it, because I execute. I'm very proud that from 22 to 34, I built my dad's business for him. I, to give you the answer for everybody who's listening, because it's very hard. The reason I've been able to make family businesses work is because I love my dad and brother more than I like money. It's just really not complicated. Family businesses are difficult because it's you're choosing between family and money. Let's make it very binary. You can, be, you can pull over on the side of the road right now. You can turn off your treadmill. You can stop walking your dog. I promise you, that's all that's happening. It's the love of your family member versus the money. And what's overlaid and the hardest part is pride or the score, as I call it. My biggest problem hasn't been the money. It's been the competitive nature of trying to figure out who's better, me and my dad, me and my brother. The thing that has been most difficult is the narrative on who's driving the ship, who's the best player on the team, and getting the respect back and forth. And I would say it was easier with my brother than it was with my dad, as it would, that would make sense. But I think the reason I've been able to be successful is a little bit of 5149. As I talked about earlier, I do that with my two family members. But I would say this, it is easily the most difficult thing that I think most people have to go through because there's, first of all, it's hard enough to build a business. When you overlay the emotional baggage of family dynamics, insecurities, fairness, and I, you know, I also only worked with my brother who was 11 years younger. If my sister had joined the business and she was three and a half years younger than me, if she joined the wine business, that would have been another dynamic. It is very difficult And I I would tell everybody the following line. You've got to try your best to take a step back and think about the funeral of the other individuals and take that into account. The, The thing that always allowed me to navigate was I didn't want to be at my dad's funeral and have regret. And I felt that it was better to leave a lot of money on the table and bet on myself in the long term that I would be able to close the gap than to have no relationship with my father and I think, you know, for a lot of Asian youngsters, I feel like the Russian and the Asian family dynamics are far more similar than, let's say, a Russian or Asian dynamic to an American family. And so I think a lot of you are going to understand that. I, but I will say this as well. I don't overreact either. I know your parents, like mine, expected respect. My dad wants respect just because he's my dad. I think that only goes so far. And so... If you want to do something that is good for you legacy-wise and you feel good about when your parents are no longer in the picture, I recommend that. But I think you also have to draw lines in the sand for your own pride and your own life. And you, you have to be uh, okay with making tough decisions. And so I have a lot of empathy on this subject matter. So I want to come to VaynerMedia. Because yes. you're coming to Asia with VaynerMedia. Yes. What inspired you to start VaynerMedia? And what is the mission and vision of your company? 
I want to build the greatest marketing machine of all time. I call it the death star of marketing. It's why I created a holding company and why you'll hear me start saying VaynerX more than VaynerMedia because VaynerMedia is the agency part, but I'm going to be building out the publishing part with VaynerX. The vision was very simple. I thought I was a unique once-in-a-generation marketer. I know how ridiculous of a statement that is, but I needed to prove it to myself whether I was right or not. And I thought the best way to do that was to build an infrastructure and a company around my skill set. And then what I wanted to do was buy brands and run it through them. The Asian aspect of our expansion, and very much this trip is a little bit about getting acclimated to Singapore with an ambition to open an office here, is I just couldn't imagine, you know, very tough to have world domination and not have a, have a play in, in Asia. So as I see the next 30 or 40 years working out in my career, I was invigorated with my trip to Hong Kong recently. And... I'm so excited about this trip. This is the beginning of a two-day trip. There's just clearly a different energy in, in entrepreneurship and uh, business that is a little bit more in tune with me. There's a reason why I think I can only live in New York. And, even at, and this is a ridiculous thing to say. And even at times, New York feels a little slow to me. So I'm looking for that energy, that drug of high-intensity, high-pressure, winner attitude and I I feel like Asia intuitively I felt it and it's been confirmed and I'm excited to see how I feel in 48 hours but I'm excited about it. I know some of your customers because I went to the website I know Budweiser, Unilever, Toyota your major customers but in specifically in US or Asia globally who are your customers? Yeah so we have Fortune 500 companies you know Johnson & Johnson global Fortune 500 companies Johnson & Johnson's and Chase and, and Budweiser ABI and Unilever, and on and on and on. And so Turner broadcasting a lot of the TV clients out there in the U.S., GE. These are major companies with offices all around the world. And and a lot of our expansion is to do with a little bit of the pressure, I feel, that we have to become more global or we'll become too one-dimensional. You know, for a lot of these companies, as you can imagine, America is a huge market, but every day becomes less of the percentage of their overall business. And so we work with very big brands. You know, we've built a division called Vayner Beta. We've built a division called Vayner Talent. So we want to work with smaller businesses because I don't want to lose that, that, those roots. Um, but when we come to Asia, it will be focused first on the Fortune 1000. And then, you know, call it 2022, 2023, I can start thinking about how to service small and medium-sized businesses in the region. And the business problems that your company is trying to solve for other customers, what, what are they? Every company in the world is overspending on marketing. Hmm. Every one of them. That's a good mission statement. And so we would like, I just want the historical, I just want to be historically correct that I'm right about that statement. I know I am. And I think in hindsight, I'll, I'll win a lot of points in history. So we are trying to get our brands to reallocate their dollars. And every market is different. And so the way a Johnson & Johnson or a Unilever or a Budweiser or Chase or Toyota markets in America is going to be different than the way they market in Malaysia or or in South Korea, and I want to be great at telling them what to do with their money and then produce the pictures, videos, and written words that help them achieve their business goals. Cool. So you just launched a pair of sneakers. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a super fun thing. You know, for everybody who's in their uh, early 40s like I am, especially if you had the luxury of growing up in America, sneaker culture is very big globally now. But I was a child of the 80s when the Jordans and the Ewings and the Barclays and the Larry Birds and Magic Johnsons, when sports sneakers became a thing, I was reached out to by K-Swiss about a year and a half ago. And they said, look, 
Adidas has won by aligning itself with Kanye, and they've won, you know, urban culture. You know, obviously Nike and Under Armour are playing in sports culture. We think that entrepreneurship is a new pillar of fame, and we think you're the face for it. And would you consider doing a sneaker before he finished Barney, the president of K-Swiss, before he finished the statement? I said yes, because it was a win. I always say yes fast when it's win-win. The way I saw it is I also agree that entrepreneurship is now on a cultural pedestal, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon. So I expect other entrepreneurs to have sneakers. And uh, for me, being the first is always interesting. So that was number one. And then number two, if it didn't work, it would be a fun you know, kind of side note for me and my buddies to make fun of my audacity that I thought I was cool enough to have a sneaker and it flopped and I have 5,000 pairs sitting in my garage. Mm, that's interesting. So you're in Asia now. Yes, I mean, I, I definitely get the motivation why you came from the U.S. to Asia. Yes. Since you are in Singapore and you've also been to Hong Kong, what yes. are your first impressions of Asia with these two cities? So my, my biggest impression, and I've spent a lot of time also watching from afar, and when I say watching afar, signing into WeChats and, uh, and Q and all these things, and so it's just a different level of rawness that I appreciate. And I don't, you know, I hate when Americans or Europeans speak to, oh, the ethics are not as good. It's all loser talk. They're coming up with excuses. I think there's a level of ambition, a level of uh, perseverance, and a level of can-do attitude that is intoxicating for real entrepreneurs. And so that is my first impression, that people are hungry. Now look, I think China is an incredibly intriguing cloud, and I don't use cloud as a bad thing, uh, but it is a thing that I think, you know, the Asian market always thinks about what are they up to, it's, it's a thing. And that, you know, I think that's intriguing. So I think it's a little early for me to make a thoughtful statement. I bought cryptocurrency in 2013 and 14, and I'm still not on the record on my thoughts on it. <laughs> so it's tough for me to think about making my official Asian POV, but the people have been so disproportionately interesting to me. It's the ambition. The ambition's real. I totally agree. So it comes to the closing. So I want to ask you two things. One is, can you recommend something that has profound influence in your life in the form of a book, podcast, or media? So this is a tough question for me. I'm a very unique guy. The answer is sure, but it's gonna be a uniquely interesting answer, which is, my audience. So, uh, for example, I just connected from Hong Kong to Singapore. Four-hour flight, I slept, so even though it was nighttime and I was trying to get tired, what did I do? The guy next to me is watching a movie. Other people are doing all sorts of different things on their electronic devices. I spent four straight hours reading comments from people on my content. So I think the reason that I'm a good culture, consumer-centric strategist is because I probably spend more time reading comments than anybody I've ever heard of. So when I used to talk about, and thank you economy, engage, you know, when I talk about reply to everybody, mm. things of that nature, what I didn't realize in 2011 that I now do in 2017 was I was already reading everyone, so the addition of replying seemed like a very lightweight ask. What I didn't realize intuitively is that most people just post and want people to like and share and read none of the qualitative feedback. And in that qualitative feedback is how I make so many of my decisions.
So the most profound impact on me, I've read zero business books. I've, I, I listen to no podcasts. Mm-hmm. My consumption patterns are documentaries or my audience, and my audience takes 95% of it. Now, when I say my audience, again, this is why I'm drawn to you. I will read a 1,000 comments. Seven of them will be very thoughtful because 95% of the feedback on me is the same, which is they think I'm a charlatan or they put me on a pedestal, which is amazing. I like both, by the way. I love when people think I'm the greatest and I love when people think I'm shit. They both make, feed me tremendously. But when somebody says something thoughtful, interesting, or observes what I'm doing in a thoughtful way, it's not only that I read that, then I'll click on them. And then I'll be 20 minutes into a rabbit hole of who else do they follow? What else have they said? What are they doing? And that has been unbelievably effective for me. So that has been my greatest impact on me, which has been the audience itself. So I will definitely check out all the comments and uh, <laughs> drop you a note. Please. So, my last question, and I think this is really, for me to you, is a dumb question. How can my audience find you? They can find you almost everywhere, right? Yes, I mean, they can. Uh, they, you know, I, and ironically, one of our big strategies is also to build out my mainland China profiles as well. But I would say facebook.com slash Gary, or the podcast is being consumed unbelievably globally. So the Gary V audio experience in a lot of you know iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or Spotify or things of that nature. So, or you can Google or search Gary VEE. Usually something will pop up. I'll make it very simple. You can find me at Bernard Leung and BernardLeung.com. You can also find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAST, and TuneIn. Of course, Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me, give me your most earnest feedback. And of course, I'm very honored here to actually talk to Gary Vaynerchuk. And I would definitely talk to you again at some point. A hundred thousand percent. Thank you, guys.